Enter this carefully. Beautiful music. It's called Inspiritus. Danny Rayel. Check it out. Welcome back to the Know Thyself History Podcast. I know I've been gone for a while. Moving, traveling. But it's great to be back. We are deep in the thick of our series on mob behavior and mass delusions. And so far we've spent a lot of time covering the witch persecutions of the early modern period. And to really present this witch mania, and some of the other topics we're going to be talking about with all of their warts and scabs and ugliness, I realize that we can't avoid talking about some of the religious underpinnings behind these persecutions. And what that essentially means is we have to talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition. And specifically today, I want to talk about one of the founding charters, the text that's one of the founding charters for all of Western civilization. I'm talking about the Bible, obviously. The Bible is the best-selling book in history. Nothing even comes close. Five billion copies sold. The Quran one day might sell just as many copies, depending on birth rates and so forth. But for now, Christian Bible number one. The first book published on Gutenberg's press was the Latin Bible. In terms of the breadth, the depth, the scope of its influence, nothing in Western civilization really even comes close. That just seems to be an objective fact. And yet, we're in a weird place with trying to study or teach about the Bible. Think how fraught it is. If you try to teach it in public school, and you don't present it in a religious way, then the true believers might not like your presentation. If you present it in too reverential a fashion, then you may be seen as violating the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. So as a consequence, most school systems don't spend almost any time talking about what is the most important and formative and influential text in all of Western civilization. Now you'll notice I'm only speaking to the influence the Bible has had. I'm not talking about its truth or falsity. I'm not talking about the relative merit of its ideas. I am just saying that it seems very difficult to understand the history of Western civilization if you don't have some basic grasp of the stories and concepts in the Judeo-Christian Bible. So today I want to present to you an overview. So most of what we know about the Bible we get in just little pieces here and there. It's like somebody throwing puzzle pieces at us. Here's a Moses piece. Here's a Babylon piece. Here's a Jesus piece. Here's an Egypt piece. Here's King David. But without the box cover to this puzzle, you can't see how all those pieces fit together. And so my rather ambitious goal today is to provide you with that box cover, with that lid, so that you can see the big picture of how all those little pieces should fit together. I'm hoping that we will understand a little bit better some of the motivations, the beliefs, and especially the values that drove the people in the Middle Ages, the early modern period, in Western civilization to act the way that they did. I also hope at the end of this that you will know the big picture overview of the Bible better than about 99% of the people you know. And in this I include religious people as well. In fact, a Pew Research study from July of 2019 asked several different groups of people, religious, atheist, Mormon, Christian, Jew, etc., several questions about the Bible and Christianity. They asked 14 questions. The average number of correct responses among all participants was 7.7, so just over half of the questions they got right. But what interests me is there is very little difference in the ability to answer these questions between some of the groups you would expect to be widely divergent. So, for example, remember 7.7 .7 is the average number of correct answers about the Bible and Christianity. The best performers in answering these questions, people who got the most answers correct, were the evangelical Christians. No surprise there. The next best group at answering various questions about the Bible and Christianity was, guess who? The atheists. Not the Catholics, not the Mormons, not the Protestants. It was the atheists. They got more answers correct than the Catholics, the mainstream Protestants, Mormons, etc. Jews also ranked very high, above many Christian denominations. So, my point is simply this, that if you want to look at the Bible from a historical point of view, being religious is no guarantee that you're going to understand or be familiar even with many of the concepts presented there. So today, in order to understand a little bit better the witch persecutions, the upcoming episode on the satanic panic, and various other massacres and slaughters, something to look forward to there again from the Know Thyself History podcast, I'm going to present to you what I call the Holy History of the Universe, Judeo-Christian Edition.
So I have to make a few very cursory introductory comments about the text itself. The book that is revered by billions of Christians is the Bible. The Bible consists of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Christians call them the Old and New Testaments because the word for testament may also be synonymous with the word for covenant or agreement. So the old agreement between God and Israel is presented in the Old Testament. When Jesus of Nazareth came, he brought a new covenant, a new agreement, a new testament. So in the biggest possible division within the Christian Bible, you have all of God's dealings with Israel before Jesus came, and that's the Old Agreement, the Old Covenant, Old Testament. And all of the writings of the early Christians after the time of Jesus are contained within the New Testament, the New Covenant. The Hebrew Bible roughly corresponds to the Christian Old Testament, but Hebrews do not call it the Old Testament because there's no New Testament. They call it the Tanakh. Tanakh is an interesting word. I love this word because it's actually an acronym. Tanaka. Ta standing for Torah. That's the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Na standing for Nevaim, which is the writings of the prophets. So that is Joshua, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and K. Ka standing for Ketuvim. That's the writings of songs and poetry like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, etc. So those three sections in the Hebrew Bible roughly correspond to the Christian Old Testament. Just want to clarify that since I'm going to be using the terminology of the Christian Bible, which is Old and New Testament, since I'm talking about the Judeo-Christian tradition. And the reason why they share the Old Testament and Hebrew Bible should be obvious. The early Christians were Jews. Jesus of Nazareth was Jewish. He followed the Torah. He quoted the writings of the prophets. He believed in what is now the Christian Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. This is the text from which his ethic, his theology, and even his ontology sprang. When I say ontology, what I'm talking about is the nature of existence. So what kinds of beings, what kinds of things actually exist? So I'm going to begin with the Old Testament, which covers a time frame from the creation of everything right up to about 400 BC. So this begs an important question. The first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When was that beginning? Well, if you listen to Archbishop Usher, primate of all Ireland, writing in the 1600s, he compiles one of the most influential chronologies in history. It's a chronology of the Old Testament. He uses whatever data he can from historical records, matches it up to the ages given of these ancient patriarchs, traces it all the way back, and in the introduction to his chronology, he writes this, quote, The beginning of time according to our chronology, happened at the start of the evening preceding the 23rd day of October in the year of the Julian calendar, 710. So in my mind, that takes a lot of confidence, not just to try to pinpoint the millennium or the century when it all took place. He goes right down to the time of day on the exact date. Now, 710 on the Julian calendar corresponds to 4004 BCE on the Gregorian calendar. That's why young earth creationists say the earth is about 6,000 years old, because they're following a very literal, very strict reading of the Old Testament along the lines of Archbishop Usher. And this is why, to some extent, there's been a warfare between theology and geology, physics, biology, etc., because their time frames do not agree, not even close. So important facts about the creation are God didn't just create the earth. He created the earth and the heavens. In fact, the heavens are viewed as kind of an afterthought. So he creates the earth for six days, but in one of those days he creates all the stars, the sun, the moon, and so forth. So it is a very earth-centric picture of the creation that has a strong influence on later astronomers. So creation takes six days, and on the seventh day, God rests. That's why from that point forward in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there is one day of rest out of every seven. If it's good for God to rest, and he sanctified and hallowed a certain day, then we need to also rest. Now, on the last day of creation, God spends most of his time making all of the land animals. The last creature that he creates is different than all the other creatures, because this is the one creature that is created in the image and likeness of God, and that creature is man. In chapter 2, we learn a little bit more about the formation of man. In fact, it says that God formed man out of the dust of the earth, this is a little bit of wordplay, because the word for man, Adam, in Hebrew, is very closely related to the word for earth, Adama. And again and again throughout the Hebrew Bible, you will find similar symbolic puns and wordplays. The names of these Old Testament, these Hebrew Bible figures, very often mean something. So God makes this man out of dirt. 
But the man isn't alive until God breathes into him what's called the breath of life. At that point, he's no longer just a lump of dirt and clay. He becomes a living being. God then has all the animals paraded in front of this man, Adam, and Adam names them, and he checks them out. And at the end of all of the animals parading in front of him, he realizes that there is a problem. There's no mate for Adam. Not the sheep, not the lioness. None of them will be a suitable mate for Adam. So God says it's not good for man to be alone, causes Adam to fall asleep, takes one of Adam's ribs out, and from that rib, he fashions a helpmeet, a mate for man. This, of course, becomes the first woman whose name is Eve. That's also symbolic. It means life giver. So now that Adam has a match, a helpmate, they live in this beautiful garden that God had planted eastward in Eden. This is kind of a tale of two trees because within the garden there are two trees. One of the trees is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That tree is very dangerous. Adam and Eve must not touch that. God warns them that if they eat the fruit of that tree, they will die that very day. The other tree is the tree of life, and they're given full permission to eat all the fruit of that tree they want to. One other condition is that the man and woman were innocent. They were naked, and they didn't even know they were naked. They were as oblivious to their own nakedness as a platypus or a spiny echidna. Adam and Eve are living in this idyllic state in the Garden of Eden, and lo and behold, the serpent comes to Eve. Now the serpent, the snake, is the most crafty of all the animals God created. This sounds a lot like Native American stories too, doesn't it? So this crafty, subtle serpent comes to Eve and says, why don't you go ahead and eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Eve says, well, we're not supposed to. The day we eat it, we will die. The snake says, is that what God told you, that you would die? That's not true. God knows the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to have God-like abilities. You will be able to tell good from evil. Eve is convinced by this. She takes the fruit and eats it. She then gives it to Adam, and he eats it. Now, the visible manifestation of the newfound power to discern between good and evil in Adam and Eve is that they recognize they're naked. They see their private parts showing for the first time, and they're ashamed. So they make aprons out of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Then they hear God walking in the garden, and they're ashamed again. They know he's going to find out what they've done, so they hide from him. God questions them, why are you hiding? And he questions Adam over why he took of the fruit. Adam promptly throws Eve under the bus, says the woman did it, she gave it to me. God questions Eve and Eve says, well, the serpent gave it to me and I ate it. So then come a series of curses that seem to me to be a way to try to explain the human condition such as it is. God curses Eve that she's going to have sorrow bringing forth her children. This is the way of explaining why human babies have these gigantic, very dangerous heads that are difficult to pass through a birth canal. He explains to Adam the concept of resource scarcity by saying that by the sweat of his brow, he's going to have to eke out his living. He's going to have to eat his bread only through hard labor and work. And what is even worse, one day Adam is going to go back down into the dust from which he was created. He was made of dust and he's going to return to the dust. Now the serpent's curse is also interesting because it also has a lot to do with dust. Now later Christians saw the serpent as symbolic of Satan, but this is not borne out by the record in Genesis because God curses this serpent to slither around in its belly through the dust all the days of its life. All of the children of Eve, all of the people on the earth, in other words, are going to hate serpents. They become the most cursed creatures on the entire earth. So when you look at it in its original form, it sounds a little bit like how the leopard got its spots. Well, this is how the snakes lost their legs. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They're no longer allowed there. They have to go out and make their way in the world. They begin to have children. The first child they have is named Cain. The second is Abel, the farmer and the cowman. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a herdsman. They both bring offerings of their wares to the Lord. Cain brings some of the best vegetables and fruits from the ground and offers them to the Lord. And Abel brings the fatted meat from his herds and offers that to the Lord. The Lord, as it turns out, is a carnivore. He loves the smell of cooking meat. And he will love it all throughout the Old Testament, as we'll talk about soon. But he doesn't much like vegetables. So he has, as it says, no respect for Cain's offering. Cain becomes angry and kills his brother Abel out of jealousy and anger. So it's interesting that the first murder in the Old Testament has, at least tangentially, a religious motivation. Or maybe I'm reaching too much there. 
Now, I want to pause here for just a moment to editorialize. Sorry about this, I have to do it. These stories sound innocuous enough, but you have to realize that if you take them extremely literally, they can have some unexpected consequences. One of the consequences of the story of the Garden of Eden is that women were seen as subservient to men for millennia, and it's something they still face even today. Another consequence, this one is something they could not have foreseen, when epidural anesthesia was introduced and women could actually experience far less pain in childbirth, many times women were denied epidural anesthesia either by their husbands or by their own beliefs because they thought it was a way to circumvent the curse of God. Now listen, people have natural childbirth for many reasons, and I'm all for it if that's what people want, but suffice it to say, denying yourself a potentially pain-relieving or even life-saving treatment because your great-great-great-grandmother ate some fruit at some point in the past does not seem like an adequate reason. Just one more comment. The idea that man was given dominion over all of the earth and all of the beasts has had the unfortunate consequence of leading to exploitation of the earth's natural resources. So these are some potentially negative consequences, but let's also admit that there is a humanistic element to these stories also. So the book of Genesis goes on after the murder of Abel by Cain. And it gets into somewhat of a fanciful genealogy. And when I say fanciful, what I mean is it says so-and-so was the father of all who play stringed instruments. This person is the father of all the people who smelt things out of ore. This guy is the father of everybody who fills in bubble sheets with a number two pencil and other pretty specific and obviously symbolic elements. But as we go through this genealogy, these people live a tremendous amount of time. These archetypal ancient figures live almost a thousand years. And if you follow the numbers in this genealogy, for 16 or 17 centuries, we arrive at Noah. So this would have been, according to Bishop Usher's chronology, about 2300 to 2400 years BCE. And this is a great story. God looks around at the entire earth and he says this was a colossal mistake to put flesh and blood on this planet because the whole earth is being defiled by these people. So he says to Noah, quote, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So it's kind of like that podcast episode that you start and you realize it just isn't going right, so you scrap the whole thing and start over, or that painting or whatever it is. God sees the entire earth and all of his creation in that light. The only people who are spared this fate of being destroyed with the whole earth are Noah and his immediate family, his three sons and all of their wives. So eight people on the entire planet. Noah is commanded to build an ark. And of course, people can't live without animals and God wants to preserve representative samples of all the species he's created. So he commands Noah to build a great big boat, an ark. And in this ark, he has to put two of each animal, male and female. Of the clean animals, those are those that are ritualistically clean, a little anachronism for you there, he has to bring seven of those animals onto the ark. And the rest of the story, of course, you know, the rains come down, the firmament, the ancients saw the heavens as a big dome sitting over the top of the earth, and that dome came apart, and all the water in the firmament fell on the earth. The floodwaters rose so high that every single piece of land was covered. Mount Everest was covered by water. And that was, according to the record, less than 5,000 years ago. So again, you can see why Darwin met with such theological resistance to his idea about the origin of species. How in the world would you get such species diversity? when every single creature on the entire planet was brought through Noah's flood on an ark. So after the flood waters recede and Noah and his family and all of these animals are saved, God says, you know, people are super violent, so I'm not going to destroy them anymore. And as a token of this promise I'm making to never destroy all of the earth with a flood again, I'm going to set my bow in the clouds. That is the origin of the rainbow. It is God's promise to his creations that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. So, of course, the solution of drowning everybody but eight people by a flood has the same limitations of the solution that Thanos effected in the Avengers movies, and that is that people tend to reproduce. Now, when there is a huge carrying capacity, because the resources are abundant and there are very few people to utilize these resources, people tend to reproduce very rapidly. That's what happens. Noah, his three sons, and all of their wives begin to reproduce. Now, all of the people of the earth are one speech and one language, so they can all communicate one with another. And they gather on a plain of Shinar, and they want to build a city and a tower that will reach all the way to heaven. 
And this is the Tower of Babel. Now, God sees that people are getting a little too big for their own britches. He sees that if they all speak the same language, they'll be able to do anything they dream of. Can't let that stand. So he curses them, or at least scrambles the language. This is the Bible story for how all of the languages of earth originated. So these poor people are building a tower to heaven, and all of a sudden their language is scrambled. You ask for one more brick so that you can keep building higher and higher, and the guy hands you a sandwich. You say, no, no, I don't want a sandwich, and he hands you, I don't know what, some kind of a squid or something. So it was impossible in these conditions for people to work together, and God successfully causes them to abandon this hubris, this tower that they're building all the way to heaven. So then there's more genealogies, more time passes, and then we come to one of the central figures in the entire narrative, the father of the faithful himself, Abraham. Abraham is born in the city of Ur in the land of the Chaldees. He probably was born within the shadow of the great ziggurat of Ur, built to the moon god Sin. When Abraham was born, his parents named him Abram, a name which means lofty or exalted father. So his name was not Abraham at birth. He eventually marries a woman named Sarai. Now, this is a great name. It's a name that really actually means henpecker or nag. So Abraham marries a nag, who also happens to be extremely beautiful, as we find out in the subsequent chapters. At 75 years old, Abraham hears God telling him, get up and leave. Now, Abraham is the father of the faithful, so he doesn't question this voice. He doesn't ask, how am I going to get there? How long will it take? Where are we going? Doesn't ask any of that. He just gets up, gets his father, gets his nephew Lot, takes his wife Henpecker with him, and they leave. All of this is taking place around the early 2nd millennium BCE. Now, as they are traveling, God makes some promises, makes an agreement with Abram. And in this agreement, he changes his name to Abraham. He also says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Your children are going to be more numerous than the sand of the sea or the stars in the sky. You're not going to be able to count them. Kings are going to come from your lineage. Your wife will no longer be called Sarai, no longer be Nag. She's going to be renamed Sarah, which means princess, and she is going to be the mother through which all of these promises are realized. Not only that, I'm going to give you a land for you and your lineage, your posterity, forever. And that's going to be the land of Canaan. And in return, Jehovah will be Abram's God. The Lord will be the God to Abram and his posterity for all eternity. And, by the way, you have to all circumcise yourselves. That last part strikes a slightly discordant note. But, again, Abram's the father of the faithful. He doesn't object. Sarai, who then becomes Sarah, is barren. She can't bear children because, as we know, in those days, problems with conception were always blamed on the women. Now, I want to pause for a moment just to say you can't really overestimate how important all these promises are to people who were from the tribes of Israel, which we will talk about in a moment, but that includes the Jews. So the Jews, around the time of Jesus, saw themselves as heirs to all of the same promises given here to Abraham. And this, in their own eyes, imbued them with a special status before God. So, now going on with the narrative. As we said, Sarah was barren. Yet she wanted Abram to have Abraham now, to have children. So she says, here, take my handmaid, Hagar, and make babies with her. Abraham does not argue. He obliges. And he makes a baby with Hagar, and the child is named Ishmael. This is important because Ishmael is viewed by Muslims as the child of promise. Muhammad descended from Ishmael. But of course, Sarah did not see Ishmael as the child of promise. Eventually, Sarah becomes pregnant and she gives birth to Isaac. At this point, she has no more need for Ishmael. In one of the coldest and cruelest episodes in the Old Testament, Sarah demands that Abraham throw out Hagar and Ishmael. And Abraham, much to his discredit, throws out the mother of his child and his own child into the desert with what is the equivalent of a canteen and a sandwich. It is a death sentence by dehydration and starvation, which would lead us to the unfortunate conclusion that Abraham was maybe a little bit more faithful than he was good. There's one more story that reveals Abraham's character, but does not necessarily directly affect the events that transpire afterward. Abraham at one point hears the voice of God telling him to take his son, the son that he loves, Isaac, tie him up and sacrifice him. Abraham does not question this voice. He takes his son to a place of sacrifice, ties him on the altar, raises the knife, and is just about to cut his son up for an offering to the Lord when he is stopped by an angel. And this story is controversial, to say the least. A lot of people see Abraham as exceptionally faithful. I can tell you this. 
There was an entire undergraduate level course on the binding of Isaac when I was in undergraduate school. I did not take that course, but that is how much discussion over the centuries this particular episode in the Old Testament has generated. Isaac is spared. He grows up and he sires a son named Jacob. He also sires Esau. But Jacob is the son of promise. Now, Jacob is a critical figure. It's kind of a weird story what happens, but Jacob is traveling with his family. He sends his family across the river and he decides to stay on the other side of the river by himself. While he is near a river all by himself, a being appears to him. And the natural thing to do with a being that appears to you, I suppose, is wrestle it. So Jacob and this being begin to wrestle. They wrestle all night long. And neither one of them could prevail. Now this being seems to want to get out of there before sunrise. Kind of like a vampire or something. So the being wants to get out of there, but Jacob won't let it go unless it gives him a blessing. In consequence of this, the being touches Jacob's thigh and puts it out of joint. But even then, Jacob didn't let go. He wouldn't let go until this being blessed him. So in the end, this being has no choice but to bless Jacob. It changes his name to Israel, the name which means one who struggles with God. So the upshot of this is, in many accounts, this being is portrayed as God. Jacob is wrestling with God through the entire night and into the morning. He won't let God go until he blesses him. Other accounts make it sound more like it was an angel, and some make it sound like it was just a man. But whatever the being was, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, one who struggles with God. This then is the origin of the tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel are named not after a place, but after this one person, Jacob, Israel, who is the grandson of Abraham, son of Isaac. So now Jacob, whose name is Israel, bears 12 sons. One of those sons, one of the youngest, is Joseph. Joseph is favored by Israel above all the other sons, which of course makes them jealous. This all comes to a head when Israel gives Joseph this very fancy coat, coat of many colors, it's called. The brothers can't take it anymore. So they take that coat, they smear blood on it, they throw Joseph into a pit, and they say, we've got to be rid of him, let's kill him. But others say, no, don't kill him, let's just sell him into slavery instead. So he is sold to Egyptian traders who sell him into slavery in Egypt. Now, Joseph is talented enough and favored enough by God that he rises from a humble slave to the vizier of all Egypt, that second in command only to Pharaoh himself. That's how much influence and power Joseph ends up with in Egypt. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, back in the promised land, there's a terrible drought. So this place has always had a lot more promise than it has rain. Israel is living there with his other 11 sons, and he has to send them to Egypt to trade, to get food, to survive the drought. So while they go to Egypt, Joseph recognizes them, and he tricks them into bringing Israel and the entire group of brothers to Egypt. Once they get in Egypt, he reveals who he is. He is Joseph that they sold into slavery all those years ago. There are many tears, many terrified apologies from the brothers who sold him into slavery. But the upshot of all this is, is that Israel and all of his 12 sons end up in Egypt. There's one thing that most people know about the 12 tribes of Israel. It is that they were released from bondage in Egypt and led to the promised land by Moses. Moses comes some 400 years later. The Israelites are at first a favored group of people, but when a new group of pharaohs takes over, a new leading class takes over, many people think these are the Hyksos, the Asiatic peoples from the east who temporarily took over power in Egypt, but we don't know that. It's impossible to map these events onto any known chronology. But anyway, a new pharaoh arises to power who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know the house of Israel, and says, look at all these Israelites. They are a threat to our power. They must be enslaved. So the Israelites are enslaved, all 12 tribes, and they are put to work building treasure cities and monuments for the Egyptians. And that goes on for hundreds of years. The most commonly cited number is 400 years. So think about how long 400 years is. The Mayflower hadn't even set sail from England 400 years ago. That's how long the children of Israel were sojourners and then slaves in the land of Egypt. That brings us down to somewhere maybe around 13, 1400 BCE. The Egyptians are starting to see how powerful the Israelites are getting. And their solution to this is to kill the majority of their laborers. So every male child that's born to the Hebrews has to be drowned in the Nile. Don't know how that would work out when you're trying to build treasure cities and you kill all of the male laborers. But that's what the record says the Egyptians did. This is the circumstance into which Moses, or Moshe, is born. He is born as a Hebrew child and his mother, in order to save his life, puts him in a little boat made of reeds and floats him down the Nile. 
Who should he be picked up by but one of the daughters of Pharaoh? Pharaoh's daughter then raises him in the court of Pharaoh. Moses has a very privileged upbringing. And things seem to be going fine for a while. But Moses begins his official career as prophet to the people of Israel with an extrajudicial execution. He sees an Egyptian overseer beating a Hebrew servant. He gets so angry that he kills the Egyptian overseer and buries him in the sand. Somebody saw him, though, and so Moses would be accused of murder. He has to run for his life. So he runs for his life. He goes into exile following the hero's journey. And while Moses is in exile, he sees a burning bush. He's told to take the shoes off of his feet because he's standing on holy ground. So he takes off his shoes, and he is introduced to the presence of the Lord. The Lord tells him that he has a mission. He's going to release his people Israel from bondage and captivity in Egypt. And after some initial protestations, Moses accepts this calling. So then he returns to Egypt. And the events that follow are fairly well known. He visits several plagues upon the Egyptians, culminating in the plague where the destroying angel kills all of the firstborn cattle, children, everything in the land of Egypt. And the only way to be spared from this destruction was to smear a bunch of blood over the doorpost of your dwelling. Well, this is too much even for the very stubborn Pharaoh, even when God, according to the Old Testament, has been hardening Pharaoh's heart again and again. Pharaoh is now a broken man. He agrees to let the people of Israel go. Moses leads what sounds like, according to the record, two to three million people into the ruthless barren desert of Sinai. Of course, Pharaoh then belatedly realizes, hey, I just let all of my best workers go. So he sends his chariots after them. And this leads to that famous episode where Moses parts the Red Sea, the children of Israel walk across on dry ground. As soon as the Egyptian armies, which are pursuing them, enter the Red Sea, it closes back in on them and drowns them. So the children of Israel are with Moses in the Sinai desert, moving toward the promised land very slowly, as we'll get to in a moment. But during this time, of course, Moses ascends Mount Sinai. He's given the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. Law of Moses is pretty interesting. It's not just Ten Commandments, something like 613 commandments. These incredibly elaborate and minute details of how they are to conduct almost all the affairs of their lives. There's really no precedent for this. You know, in other societies, there is a priest class. There are professional priests who went through ritual purifications and sanctifications so that they could be ready to approach the deity for the people. But Moses says he wants the people of Israel to be a nation of priests. He wants all of them to be holy. And so as a consequence, every single member of the camp of Israel, these 12 tribes, these millions of people who are wandering in the desert, have to abide by a very strict code of behavior. And I have no time to get into all of those different commandments and codes and rituals and so forth. But I do want to say this. The preoccupation of the Israelite religion was the killing, cutting into pieces, smearing the blood of, burning, heaving, waving, and eating these various sacrificial animals. The sacred altar that the Israelite priests used was an altar for butchery and burning. It's hard for us to comprehend the sacred nature of the religion of ancient Israel. I mean, this was essentially devoted to burning oxes, twisting the head off pigeons, spraying blood all over the altar from these sacrificed animals, burning them up and watching the smoke rise up. Why was this done? There are dozens of verses in the Old Testament that mention the fact that God loved to smell that sweet savor of burning flesh. In fact, right from the start of the law in Leviticus chapter 1, you have detailed instructions how to kill the ox, how to twist the head off the pigeon, how to cut the throat of the sheep, cut it into pieces, splash its blood all over the altar, wash the smelly stuff out of its guts, and then burn the whole thing to cinders because that was the sweet savor to the Lord. That was the chief way to ingratiate or propitiate their deity. Now, obviously, this would have provoked a strong visceral response among the people and certainly would have held their attention, but it kind of seems cruel to us. So anyway, back to the narrative. This wandering mob of goat slitters. <laughs> Sorry, that's it's probably disrespectful. <laughs> this band of true believers made their way through the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years. Now, the distance between Egypt and Jerusalem is about 350 miles. They took 40 years to get there. I did some of the math on that. This means they traveled at an average rate of one one-thousandth of a mile per hour, about five feet per hour. Now, if a snail were to crawl from Egypt to Jerusalem, if it rested for two hours for every hour that it crawled, that snail would go six times farther than the children of Israel did in 40 years. 
But there's a reason why they had to wander for so long. An entire generation had to die out because they displayed cowardice when they first saw the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They were afraid to fight them. And so God waited for them to die until more worthy people could be born, people with more courage who would then go in and exterminate all the Canaanites. And that's exactly what happened. There is a world historic scale genocide presented in the Old Testament as the children of Israel slaughtered man, woman, and child from the nations that were inhabiting the land of Canaan. And after the people who were living in the land of Canaan are exterminated, the 12 tribes receive their various inheritances. You can look at a map of the ancient regions of each of the 12 tribes as they are presented in the Bible. The interesting thing about it is, is one of the tribes, one of the 12 sons of Israel was named Levi. But the Levites did not receive an inheritance. They were the priests. They had to be among all of the people performing these sacred rituals. Because they were the priest class, they did not receive a land for their inheritance. Instead, two of the sons of Joseph, so the grandsons of Israel, received lands for their inheritance. That was Ephraim and Manasseh. That is why on that map and in subsequent history, you'll see no mention of the tribe of Joseph. You will see Ephraim and Manasseh, but realize that they are the sons of Joseph. So after the people of Israel enter the land of Canaan, they form a loose confederacy of all these various tribes, and they're ruled over by what are called judges. Now, judges could be best understood as warlords, strong men, strong women. So they are more like chieftains than kings. And eventually, the people of Israel see all of the other nations around them having kings, and they want a king too. They don't want to be ruled over by these chieftains, these warlords. They want a king. So around the year 1000 BC, nice and convenient, around 1000 BC, they appoint Saul to be the first king of the people of Israel. So they become no longer just the people of Israel, no longer just the tribes of Israel. They become the kingdom of Israel. This begins a golden age in the history of Israel. Saul is their king. He leads them in battle against the Philistines. But unfortunately, Saul goes nuts. And as Saul is going nuts, then David becomes the king. David is an erstwhile border thief, brigand, and mob boss of sorts. But he is also a very good-hearted person. And he becomes the king after Saul dies. Now, David has plenty of wives of his own, but he falls in love with a woman named Bathsheba who is the wife of a man named Uriah. He has Uriah killed and takes Bathsheba as his own wife. And out of that union comes their son, Solomon. Solomon then becomes the king after David. And Solomon is famous for his wisdom. He is the wisest man on the entire earth. People come from all over just to hear his wisdom. During the reign of Solomon, he has like a thousand wives and concubines. The kingdom of Israel is rich and respected. And Solomon undertakes the building of what is known as the first temple, a beautiful structure dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. These are, in the memory of the Israelite nation, the glory days. These are the times when they had the prestige and the influence they would never enjoy again. That is why when they, in later generations, talked about the return of a Messiah, somebody who would restore them to prestige, they would say that this would be like David. It would be a king who would rule over them, who would restore their prestige and power. This is what a lot of the Jews at the time of Jesus thought that a Messiah should do, is restore the nation to its prestige and power and independence. They also thought that this Messiah should come from the tribe of Judah, because that's the tribe that David and Solomon came from. Anyway, Solomon is reigning in glory and prestige and honor and magnificence. He has a son named Rehoboam. After Solomon dies, Rehoboam is unreasonable. He wants to raise taxes, increase the burdens on the people. People are already tired of paying for Solomon's building projects, so they rebel. Ten of the tribes break away from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they form what is known as the Northern Kingdom, the Ten Tribes. It also goes by the name of Ephraim, because Ephraim was the dominant group in the Northern Kingdom, or the Ten Tribes. The capital of the Northern Kingdom was Samaria. The ruler of the northern kingdom initially was Jeroboam. The remaining two tribes, the southern tribes, were Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem was part of their domain, so they kept the temple and they kept Jerusalem. So we now have a divided monarchy. We have a king in the north ruling over ten tribes. We have a king in the south ruling over two tribes. The upper kingdom, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, is known as Ephraim or Israel. That's where it gets a little confusing, because sometimes when the Bible uses the term Israel, it's talking about all 12 tribes, but other times it's talking about strictly the northern kingdom. And later, when the 10 tribes have ceased to exist, when the Bible uses the term Israel, it's only talking about the Jews. So this is a word that can be quite confusing. 
we have this divided kingdom, and they are usually at war one with another. They don't get along very well. And according to the Old Testament record, there are some bad kings and some good kings in the southern region, in Judah. But in the northern kingdom, every single king is portrayed as evil. As we get into this part of the Bible, you have the prophets, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth, who come and prophesy the downfall of the various kingdoms, their captivity, and so forth. These two separate kingdoms exist for a while. But as the northern kingdom is far more powerful and far more of a player in regional politics, it's the first to fall. In 723 BC, a date we actually know, the northern ten tribes come up against the wrath of a man named Tiglath-Pileser. How would you like to face a man named Tiglath-Pileser in battle? Well, the Israelites did not like it very much either. Both Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser, the two Assyrians, conquer the northern ten tribes and lead them away captive. And this, for all intents and purposes, is when the northern ten tribes cease to exist. They probably simply get absorbed into the populations in which they're living in captivity. But there are these prophecies, these predictions, that they still exist, they're still living somewhere, that God is going to bring them back again and restore them to the lands of their inheritance in Canaan. So far, that hasn't happened. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, continues on for another, oh, 140 years or so. But they are not players in regional politics. They're usually a vassal to some other greater kingdom. And in the end, the Babylonians get tired of these shifting alliances, shifting allegiances. The Jews try to break away from Babylonian rule, and the Babylonians, under Nebuchadnezzar II, destroy Jerusalem, raise the temple to the ground. They destroy the temple. That ends the first temple period in Jewish history. They carry away the tribes of Judah and Benjamin collected in the southern kingdom to Babylon. So this is the storied time of the Babylonian captivity. By the rivers of Babylon Where he sat down And where he went When he remembered Zion Oh, how the wicked carry us away Captivity required from us a song talk about one more thing that's not necessarily explicitly spelled out in the Bible, but is referenced. It's in the common parlance. That is the idea of Zion. What was Zion? Zion was literally the hill upon which David built his royal city. So it's a hill in Jerusalem. But it also serves as a synecdoche for the entire Jewish nation. So when the captives in Babylon wept when they remembered Zion, it's not because they're just thinking about this one hill upon which the city of David was built. It's more because they're remembering their entire home, their lost status, prestige, and their freedom. So that's the concept of Zion. Now, the people of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, who lived among the Jews, did not befall the same fate that the ten tribes in the north did. They did not cease to exist as a people. They were able to preserve their ethnic identity through the Babylonian captivity. Eventually, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and the Persian emperor Cyrus allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. In fact, he even sponsors and patronizes the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. And in the year about 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian allows the first expeditions of Jews to return to Jerusalem. So toward the end of the Old Testament, the Babylonian captivity is over. The Persians are allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. The temple is being rebuilt. Judah remains one of several provinces within the Persian Empire. Make no mistake, it wasn't completely free, but they had relative religious freedom under Cyrus the Persian. And the Jews are busy at work restoring the walls of the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. This begins what's called the Second Temple Period, when Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, with Persian funding, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So the Persians maintained control in the end of the Old Testament, but between the Old and New Testament times, between 400 BC and zero, the Persians are conquered by Alexander the Great. Alexander conquers Persia in 332 BC. If you want to know why the New Testament was written in Greek, look no further than Alexander. Alexander was a Macedonian, he spoke Greek, and he spread Greek culture throughout the world in a process called Hellenization. So control was passed after Alexander's death to his generals. It ended up in the hands 
of the hated Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes committed all sorts of blasphemies and outrages on the Jewish people. He was eventually overthrown by the Hasmoneans, people known as the Maccabees, the Hammers. So there is an independent Jewish state after the overthrow of Antiochus Epiphanes until about 63 BC. And that is when the Roman general Pompey comes in and conquers Jerusalem and all the surrounding regions. That's why at the beginning of the New Testament, and throughout the New Testament in fact, the people are ruled by Romans. This brings us now to the New Testament. This is no longer in the Tanakh, by the way. This is only in the Christian Bible which begins possibly around 4 BC, we don't know exactly, but the birth of Yeshua ben Yusuf. Now, an interesting fact, Jesus was never called Jesus once in his entire lifetime. His name was Yeshua ben Yusuf. He would have been closer to Joshua Josephson if we were to translate it directly into English. We know a lot about his life from the Gospels, but there's some controversy over which events are historical and which are not. If you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, then they are all historical, and you merely have to harmonize them. But some of the least controversial events, from a historian's point of view, of the life of Jesus are his baptism by John the Baptist, his reputation as a teacher and healer, and his crucifixion under the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. The Gospels present a fairly detailed picture of his life, and it's clear from that that a lot of his popularity, a lot of his reputation hinged on his abilities as an exorcist and healer. He had many, many interactions with demons. He would bind demons, throw them out of people. He saw demons that caused sickness, dumbness, epilepsy. And the interesting thing is, there is not a lot of demonology in the Old Testament. People in the Old Testament, the prophets there, do not spend a lot of their time casting demons out of people. Jesus goes through his ministry. He helps people. He teaches a charitable doctrine of mercy, love, compassion for the poor, etc. And then because of his more difficult doctrines, or because he is seen as a potential Messiah candidate by the Romans, we don't really know, he is crucified by Pontius Pilate. Unlike other victims of crucifixion, though, Jesus didn't stay dead. This is the basis for the entire Christian movement. Jesus was considered divinely inspired a great man, even a son of God by his followers. But his reputation rose to an entirely new level when an empty tomb was found on the third day after his crucifixion, and then when he was seen by his disciples, living and breathing, eating, talking. And that became the cornerstone of their faith. Now, this was initially a Jewish movement. Jesus was Jewish. His initial followers were Jewish. This is why there is still the Old Testament in the Christian Bible. The Israelite tales of creation, the patriarchs, the 12 sons becoming 12 tribes, the Egyptian captivity and deliverance, all of it was the religious and cultural milieu into which Jesus was born. And they believed it. It was a Jewish movement. They quoted scriptures from the Old Testament with regularity. Jesus taught that anybody who tried to tell other people not to keep the law of Moses would be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. And so it was a Jewish movement, and it wasn't until Saul joined the Christian movement that that would change. Saul was a Jewish Pharisee. He was an active persecutor of the Christians. He had a visionary experience while he was traveling on the road to Damascus, wherein he saw the risen Jesus Christ, who asked him why Saul was persecuting him. Saul was converted through this event, and he became the most zealous, ardent, and effective proponent of Christianity. And he took his message to the non-Jews, which were called Gentiles. By the time Saul, who was then called Paul, was done, there were more Gentile Christians than there were Jewish Christians. And the letters that he wrote comprise a very large portion of our current New Testament. And in these letters, Paul lays out in a pretty systematic fashion what it means to be a Christian. Paul is the one who divorces Christianity from the law of Moses. Paul is the one who determines that faith is what is necessary to be a Christian, not works. All of this is Paul. Paul is the single most influential Christian thinker in history. There are other writings in the New Testament, some of them from Peter, some from John, at least people calling themselves Peter or John. But Paul's writings are the most influential, as I said. There's also a strange book at the end of the New Testament called The Revelation of St. John the Divine. That is a revelation he received while he was on the Isle of Patmos, possibly around 70 AD. So this concludes our survey of the Holy History of the Universe, the Judeo-Christian edition. I want to take just a minute specific to the series that we've been talking about with witchcraft and the Great Satanic Panic. 
to talk about how formative the Persian years were for Jewish thought. Because many people are surprised when they realize that in the Old Testament there is very little talk of an afterlife. There's certainly no clearly defined heaven or hell. There's no Satan, at least not the way that Christians understand them, as a being that can actively attempt to thwart the purposes of Yahweh. There's no demonology. There's no malevolent disembodied spirits that tempt and persecute mankind. There are Canaanite deities that the children of Israel are punished for worshiping. Beings like Moloch, the one to whom they would sacrifice their children. Beings like Baal-zebub, the lord of the flies, and so forth. But these are just Canaanite deities. They were false idols. The ancient Israelites, at least during historical times, were strict monotheists. So the idea that there was this being like Satan that was extremely powerful, that could be everywhere, read everybody's mind, put thoughts in everybody's head, thwart the purposes of God, was something foreign to them. It would have seemed henotheistic, I guess. What I mean by henotheism is the idea that there are more than one gods out there, but you should only worship one god, maybe the most powerful, the most worthy of worship. But the Israelites were monotheists. Fast forward to the time of the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. The Persians at the time are by and large Zoroastrians. Zoroaster was a prophet who lived around 600 BC, same time as Lao Tzu, Buddha, etc. So it's pretty fertile time, 600 BC, for prophets. In ancient Persia, he taught that there was a battle between light and dark, good and evil, between Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainyu. Mazda was the god of light and goodness, and Mainyu was the god of darkness and destruction. And Zoroaster portrayed the battle between light and dark as a very real battle, with very real casualties, and you had to choose whose side you were going to be on. He did predict that Ahura Mazda would win in the end, the forces of light and goodness would win in the end, but that it wasn't going to be easy, it was going to be a struggle. There was also going to be a judgment after your death, and you would be consigned to heaven or hell, according to the deity, which side you chose to fight on. And so if you just go through Zoroaster's teachings, point by point, teachings about the personal judgment day that we were going to face, about the resurrection of the body, the reuniting of body and soul, the final judgment, about malevolent forces, demons at large in the world who are tempting and doing the will of their malevolent leader, then I think you can see pretty clearly the influence that Zoroaster had by the time of the New Testament. In fact, one of the liveliest debates in the New Testament was between the Sadducees who said, there's no resurrection, and the Pharisees who said, no, there is a resurrection of the body, and it's just like Zoroaster said it would be. In a very real sense, the Judaism into which Jesus of Nazareth was born seems to be kind of a synthesis between the Old Testament and the metaphysics and eschatology of Zoroaster. So you ask, how is this relevant? And I would simply say this. In this series so far, we've been talking about witches, American and European witches. And as I said before, American and European witches are Judeo-Christian witches, and they're powered by and supported by Satan and his demons. These beliefs are remarkably persistent, by the way. The majority of young Americans still believe in demonic possession. Who knows, maybe they're right. This concludes this episode of Know Thyself History Podcast. Thank you for listening. As I said, it's good to be back. 